I'm Jeff Cohen. I haven't met too many rabbis who can also say they've worked as a park ranger and a certified yoga instructor, but those are just two of the fascinating details about Rabbi Jonathan Shulman's journey to Jewish observance. He's here today to share the rest of his story, including the truly impactful work he's doing today for the Jewish people. Rabbi Shulman, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I really want to jump right into all these park ranger and yoga instructor questions, but let's get to know you a little bit first before we get there. I'm sure we will over the course of the interview. So let's just start from the beginning and tell us uh, where you were born and raised. Sure. Actually, probably noteworthy to start before I was born with my parents. So my dad grew up in a reform family in the Boston area, in Brookline. Um, and my mom grew up in a assimilated family in Manhattan. And they met in New York City. My dad was at Columbia for graduate school. He's a physicist. He was doing his PhD. And they got married and moved to Washington, D.C. because my dad got a job on the space program working for the National Research Lab. So that's how they found themselves in Washington, D.C. And that's where I was born. And that's where my sisters were born. And that's where we were raised. And um, the real seeds of my own Jewish journey were started with my parents when they sent us to a Jewish kindergarten at Addis Israel in D.C. My first Jewish memory of being in preschool was we had a nap time on these cots. Now I love to nap. Then I didn't like to nap. <laughs> so I was practicing my somersaults and I backflipped off my cot into all the lunch boxes. So that's what I remember most about uh, preschool at Addis Israel. But it really did transform the family as we brought a ton of stuff home. And my mom actually had a Jewish journey of her own. She grew up reading uh, Diary of Anne Frank and thinking a lot about Jewish identity. And like my story is about Chuva really starts primarily with her story as a Balas Chuva and somebody who really made a very conscious decision in her life all the way back to high school, but through college and into marriage to raise a Jewish family and make sure that that was a primary piece of her story in her life. So your mom's journey begins kind of before you're born, like with your father, are they becoming like reform conservative all the way to orthodox or how far are they going before you come into the picture? Yeah, so um, they didn't really think about it in halakhic terms so much. I grew up in a conservative family and conservative life was filled with contradictions. So we kept a kosher home. We had Friday night dinners always together. And for my friends at that time, I grew up in a private school in D.C. I was going to Georgetown Day School and then later for high school, I went away to prep school at Andover at Phillips Academy. And for anyone who knew me through grade school and high school, I was the most religious person they'd ever met because it's pretty countercultural to have to stay home Friday night for a couple hours and have dinner with your family. My friends would come over and be completely bewildered by the different sets of dishes. It's just things they had never heard of before. But on the flip side, we would, you know, we would eat whatever out. We would drive to Shoal on Shabbat morning. I never even knew there were services on Friday night. We only went on Saturday morning. So it certainly wasn't Orthodox, but there was a real, real deep commitment to living Jewishly. My dad became the president of the synagogue, but it really was my mom and her, her journey into finding her own identity, sense of history. My mom's a historian. My avenue into Judaism is really much more through a spiritual seeking type of a lens. My mom's is much more through history, communal and Jewish peoplehood type of a lens. From the way you're describing, it almost sounds like a conservadox family because there are things you're doing that are clearly conservative and there are other things you're doing, like you said, seem more than anybody else you knew around you. Is that like a fair way to characterize what your upbringing was? Because you also weren't in a yeshiva day school, so you're in a secular school all the way through 12th grade, right? 
I went to the classic Hebrew school. I, I, sat, <laughs> I watched uh, A Serious Man, the Coen Brothers movies with my kids and my kids who now grew up, you know, Orthodox and mostly in Israel. They couldn't believe that that's what conservative Judaism really looked like. And I was <laughs> nodding and smiling the whole time. It was like they nailed it. It's exactly what it was like. But I, I don't know. I mean, we never self-identified as conservatox. I guess you're right that we were somewhere like on that border. But it wasn't so unusual in the conservative movement back then in the 80s to be observant and to keep kosher and to go to synagogue on Saturday morning and you know, to make sure those things were part of your life wasn't. It didn't feel within the context of our synagogue that we were anything but sort of mainstream family within that context. So many of the interviews that I've done with someone who's not raised Orthodox, they have a bar mitzvah, but then after that, because there's nothing really to do next, everything kind of drops off. And then their story picks up because of something else that happens when they're a young adult. What happens to you in terms of, do you have a bar mitzvah? And then what happens in the high school years in terms of religion? Yeah, I did have a bar mitzvah. Still remember my necktie, wore a beautiful purple <laughs> necktie. My mom has a great sense of color. So I think I had orange socks and a purple necktie. And then after... Hebrew school, after I guess Hebrew school ended and with the bar mitzvah, it is true it tailed off a little bit. But for me, I went away to prep school. My parents separated when I was in 10th grade and I or really in ninth grade. And I went away to prep school at Andover in 10th grade and actually still was fairly committed and involved there. I think one of the reasons was really feeling like an outsider in a very waspy New England prep school type culture. And there was actually a warm group of Jewish students there that we would get together in the basement of the chapel, cover up all of the pictures and statues and have Kabbalah Shabbat there. And that was actually really special for me. And I sort of remember feeling a little like a Murano, sort of having to like go hide out in the basement. And it was sort of a secret identity. But it also allowed me in that environment to connect with some people and build a community that felt familiar and comfortable to me. And what was then for me an environment that was challenging and felt very foreign and alien. Then when I got to college, then that is really where it dropped off. Then I went to University of Virginia. Rush for fraternity started before classes started. So the madness already started in August before I ever stepped foot in the classroom. And I joined a fraternity and got really involved in that and, and was really not involved in Jewish life at all. It might have taken me a few more years because of prep school, but that's where I ended up. I was going to say, it's actually pretty impressive, given the prep school that you went to, that you even held on to anything. You certainly weren't surrounded by enough like-minded people to make it easy for you. So it shows there was something in you that was holding on, even if it became even harder when you got to college. Yeah, I really do. I think about this a lot with my own kids and family is just having it be something that you enjoy and having fond memories about it. And Jewish life and my family life was always just a real positive for me. So it was never a feeling of, I don't want to do this anymore because it felt like a big burden. It just was sort of, okay, you know, you're surrounded by, I don't know, fraternity life at UVA or whatever it's going to be. And it just wasn't conducive to that environment. But, um, but it was also interesting at Andover because I met some really interesting Jews from all around the world. We had Panamanian Jews and, you know, it had this collegiate environment of people from around the world. It's the first time that I was able to connect with Jewish peoplehood on a bigger scale other than just sort of people in your local synagogue. And that was actually really fun and exciting and helped me to, you know, connect with more people there and keep me in that Jewish fold at least for a few more years before before the whirlwind of college hit. So speaking of college, you mentioned University of Virginia. Are you career minded at this point? Like, what are you studying? and What are you thinking you're going to do with your life? I always thought I was going to be a lawyer because when you grow up in Washington, D.C., everybody else I knew was a lawyer. 
So I assumed I was going to be a lawyer. I always was a talker. And I then went into UVA thinking I'll do pre-law. So I did political science, international relations, thinking I would then go on to law school after college. That came to a crashing end summer after sophomore year when I made the mistake of interning in a law firm. <laughs> so I was interning in a firm in Washington, D.C., and really just really didn't like it. It was um, I felt trapped. I felt empty to me. It just didn't feel like it held any meaning or any excitement for me. And at that point, I was really starting to think more about, you know, what was my life about searching for something with more meaning or more truth? And just the idea of living my life that way. And I, I think it would have been personally sort of just a disaster for me. Like, I think on a certain level, like my religious path was also a gut check about who you are and how you want to live your life. And so it was interesting. You mentioned the park ranger. That was my first foray into backpacking. I quit the internship in the law firm and bought a ticket out to Glacier National Park in Montana and just started hiking. And it was the most amazing place I'd ever been. And the idea of just having everything you need on your back and walking into the most beautiful places on earth for days or a week at a time was just riveting to me and tons and tons of time to sort of think. And I don't even remember what I thought at that point, but I just remember that the world started to feel very open and full of adventure. And I met some wild people out there that I never met in my sort of democratic, liberal, upper middle class bubble in Washington, D.C., who were just amazing and interesting. And it was really eye-opening for me. I think that started my love with the outdoors, but also started for me different adventures and wanting to travel and to see the world in different ways. I was just thinking from the intro when I said you were a park ranger, I was thinking in my head, how does this guy become a park ranger? It's such an unusual story. But then the fact that you said, I tried out being a lawyer and I felt trapped, it's like you did the exact opposite of being a lawyer by going out into nature and hiking and all that. It's like the complete opposite of feeling trapped in an office. Yeah, it was a little bit of push and pull. So that was definitely the push. I never really got back on a professional track. I was more interested in taking all kinds of different things. Took jazz music classes, Buddhism classes. Besides my major, I would just sort of dabble and do all sorts of liberal arts and humanities classes. And the problem with that is I woke up in like March of senior year realizing that I had no job lined up or no prospects. So somehow I found that you could apply to the park service. So that's what I did. I actually had two things lined up. My dad, he was a physicist who joined the National Research Lab and worked for the space program, but he stopped that in 1980 and started his own company. And so in his sort of business travels, he had met a guy who did import-export in Hawaii with a Chinese ginger company. So my dad had set me up with an interview with this guy and it was just a phone call. And the guy said, look, you sound really interesting. I can't promise you a job, but if you want to come out to Hawaii and he was on the big island, no less. So if you want to come out to the big island and spend a week out here, I can't promise anything, but we'll see how it goes. So that was one thing I had lined up, which is about the least confirmed job opportunity of all time. <laughs> And then my application to the Park Service had produced a, an opening in Yosemite for the summer. So I had to choose between those two, and I still have never been to Hawaii. So I chose to go to Yosemite and spend the summer being a park ranger. So there's got to be at least one interesting anecdote from your time as a park ranger, like something that happened, something you saw. Take us inside that time when you were in that role. Um, yeah, first of all, I was stuck actually, though in an office of sorts. So I worked in the Wilderness Center. And what I didn't realize about the Park Service is that it's really quasi-military. 
it was started by Roosevelt back in the teens. And he was a real, like Teddy Roosevelt was a real military guy and he modeled it after the military and you're in a uniform and it's very, there's a lot of stricture to it. And you combine that with your job in the wilderness center is basically retail. So I don't think kids have these jobs anymore now, but like when I was a kid in high school, I used to work in Georgetown Park and like the mall in Georgetown selling stereos and doing retail for the summer. And it was like that because you're just over and over again talking to thousands of people per week about the exact same spiel. And instead of selling stereos, you're telling them about the bears or safety consciousness or, you know, whatever it is you're telling them about that you have your 30 second spiel about the park. So it actually was a profoundly uninteresting and unfulfilling job. But then every couple of weeks, they'd send you on a tour of duty in the backcountry. And then you basically just get to walk around and patrol, really just be on patrol. Nothing exciting ever really happened, which is probably a good thing, because I don't know if I wanted to confront anybody about uh, wilderness violations in the woods. But what I did love was the backpacking. I loved everything about being out in nature and backpacking the challenge of it, the experience of it. And so someone suggested to me, you know, there's another aspect to park rangering, which is trail maintenance. And you have these trail maintenance crews who live in campsites with 10 or 15 people, days walking way back in the outback. And then every morning they walk out to the site that they're working on and they do their work on steps or clearing trails or whatever it's going to be. And then they come back at night and they all kind of live together. So like, why don't you go try that out? So I went and spent the night with this group in the backcountry, which was really a wild experience that there are these groups of people walking sometimes 10 miles round trip every day just to get to their piece of the trail that they're working on. That was quite an insight into who runs the trails and cleans up the woods and makes all the backcountry of America work. Clearly, being a park ranger is not going to be what you do for the next 30 years from the stories you just told. So I also mentioned yoga instructor in the introduction. So does that come next in kind of the searching and seeking and trying to figure out what you want to do? Yeah, I had the travel bug. So I came back to D.C. and just to make some money, worked in a record store, which there used to be, Tower Records in Georgetown just made some money and then I went off to a international development project in India, which I found sort of randomly through the UN, made a call to somebody. So I took off to India and it was really only supposed to be a two-month um, experience living with a community up in the mountains in Uttar Pradesh, which is way up in the north, just next to Nepal. So I went a month early because I wanted to hike in Nepal. So I, I spent three or four weeks hiking in the backcountry up to the Everest base camp. And then came down to New Delhi to meet my group. And, and since there was no internet, I had no idea who this group was going to be. We were all supposed to meet in this youth hostel in Delhi. And I spent the night there, woke up in the morning and went downstairs to meet my group. And lo and behold, it's me and 13 Danish women in their 20s. And they were <laughs> all like six foot tall, blonde, blue eyes. They were towering over everybody else. It was a wild experience. It, it felt like I fell into like a Budweiser commercial in India. <laughs> with like the Danish ski team. So there we were, me and 13 Danish women. We got on a train with the guy who organizes these experiences and this work in India. And we went up to this village and we lived up there with the village. And it really was like going back in time. I mean, there's water from a pump. There was electricity, but only a couple hours a day. Dinner was cooked over an open fire. And we really got to live with the village. We did some work with a daycare and we did a lot of environmental work, replanting forests. They have a lot of deforestation issues, or at least did. This is, oh my gosh, this must be 25, 30 years ago. But it's, it's interesting. That's actually where I started keeping Shabbos. And, and the reason I think is that 
India has a completely different sense of time. Like we, we really do live our lives in a very linear model. We pretty much know where we're going in life through school, high school, college. I mean, Israel adds the army, America more emphasis on college. In India, it's hard to explain. It's very experiential, but it just doesn't work like that. It's nothing's on time. Nothing feels linear. It really takes you out of your comfort zone in a way that I'd never experienced before. And so there I was in a, in a place which is also very spiritual in the sense that people think about their days differently, their lives differently. There's a lot of sort of meditation and ancient spiritual practices. And so I was sort of left to think for myself, like, well, how did I want to fill that desire or that like that sense of searching that I had, which part of it was being exercised through physical travel, whether it's to Nepal or India or Yosemite, a part of it was internal. And how did I want to express that internal search? And so for me, it was just one Friday afternoon. There I was sitting out on the side. It's really, really beautiful up there and thinking about my life. And I had this really deep and rich experience with my family in Shabbat. And that's what I decided I want to just try to do is keep Shabbat. Now, I did not really know how to keep Shabbat halakhically. The first thing I did the next day was go on a walk, which was way too far and way past whatever, wherever the tchum would have been. But more or less, I sort of knew the basic outlines, the basic guidelines. And that was it for me. I was, I was hooked and I was keeping Shabbat ever since. You're doing this completely by yourself. You're not coming across another Jewish person, another rabbi while you're there. It's just something you arrive at completely on your own. I'm going to start keeping Shabbos while I'm in India. Uh, yeah, so for me, I went to college at a time where there really was not anything close to what there is now. There was, certainly was no JLIC. There was no Chabad on campus. There was no Olami. It's a completely different landscape. At UVA, I lived actually across the street from the Hillel, but I must have gone only a handful of times my whole time there. All there was was a director there who was a part-time reform cantor who was a lovely guy. He did teach a class, which I went to a couple times, which I really liked. And it was probably the best thing in the world for me. When I started getting more interested, I I went to Hebrew U for a semester abroad in college. And that was very eye-opening for me. And when I wanted to learn more, I just did it on my own. It was actually interesting. The first book that I read in college was the Haggadah. I read the Art School Haggadah cover to cover, which sounds very strange, but it's very familiar to me. And it was an insight into the depth of the text, how everything's layered with meaning. But I think it was the best thing for me because if I had had what is the sort of modern Kiruv, I don't think I would have made the choices that I made. I I think I needed to come to it myself. I think I needed to do it on my own terms. And I had a background that was already a very rich source of like inspiration for me and incredibly fond memories and part of who I was as a person. It was really about trying to figure it out for myself. I just want to back up to one thing you just mentioned going to Hebrew U. But I thought you had said like while you were in college, you joined a fraternity and that was the time that Judaism was the most on the side in your life. So how did that come about? Right in the middle of feeling that way, you then said, but I also want to go to Israel for a semester? So that was also part of the fallout from my law internship. After I got back from Glacier and needed to change directions, I wanted to take a semester abroad junior year. And I never took a language. I only took Latin and Greek, which is very in line with Andover. I had the most incredible Latin and Greek teachers. My, my Latin teacher was a guy named Pascucci. He was straight out of central casting for a Latin teacher. <laughs> I must have been in this 200-year-old wood building. It was amazing. 
conjugating and declining. But when I wanted to go abroad, there really wasn't a natural fit for me because I didn't speak French or Spanish or German or anything like that. So I decided I'd go to Jerusalem and go to Hebrew U. And it was amazing. I met an incredible group of people. It wasn't so much a religious experience for me, but it was a very, very deep Jewish experience. And it was my first time in Israel. So it definitely sparked something that I sort of continued thinking about, learning about when I came back to campus. That's actually remarkable to me because you have this semester abroad in Israel, which easily could have been the time that you said, you know what, I should give Shabbos another look. But no, it's a few years after that going to India where it kicks in for you. Yeah, I... I I mean, we were, to be honest, we were having too much fun when we were at the <laughs> university in Jerusalem. So every weekend we were traveling either in Israel or going to Turkey or Greece or just an amazing group of people. And there was one or two people I did get to know there who were Shomer Shabbat, but for the most part, nobody was. And I think that sort of played into it as well. Whereas by the time I graduated from college and was in India, even though obviously my Danish crew was not keeping Shabbat, uh, there was no one Jewish around, but... At that point, I think I was a little more mature and it was more about me and, and trying. I was more on an independent journey at that point. And so that became, um, you know, something that I wanted to like experiment or try on my own, which felt simultaneously comfortable and familiar to me, but also felt like a real stretch and very new, a very new experience for me. Let's now go into the part of your story where you come back from India. You're keeping Shabbos. Where do you come back to? You're back to D.C.? And where are you holding overall in terms of religion and what's the next career move? Yeah, so I came back to D.C. actually wanted to get into the restaurant business. I was a vegetarian. I actually started becoming a vegetarian at the end of college. And I was going to open a bean restaurant, an all-bean restaurant. And it, I had fallen in love with beans, which I'm still in love with. I got my pressure cooker. I cook beans all the time. It would have been a disaster of a restaurant. I had a great name, though. I was going to call it the Legumery, which I thought would have been a cool name. <laughs> But in order to do that, I really wanted to learn about the restaurant business. But before I did that, the the thing that was really primary for me was since I had had this experience traveling, had been to India, I ended up staying in India much longer and just traveling. I met up with an amazing crew of people and met a yoga teacher down south along the beach. And a group of people just rented a house and we just did yoga all day. We did yoga and meditation and breathing exercises basically all day long. So I really came back on this journey, which was both incredibly intense and personal, but also very Jewish. So I knew I wanted to get back to Israel because I just didn't really have the knowledge and the grounding. And I wanted that experience. Israel had really, really fond memories for me from my time at Hebrew University and was an amazing place of growth for me. So I came back, worked in a summer camp for the summer and went off to Israel to do a program called WUJIS, World Union of Jewish Students which used to exist in, in Arad. It was, it was a very, very mixed crew. It was probably about 60 people or so just after college. The program existed for decades and was really wonderful part of a lot of people's lives. We spent six months down in the desert in Arad and then six months doing an internship back up in Jerusalem. And I met my wife to be there. She was just finishing Harvard and taking some time off before she wrote her undergraduate thesis and just met a, a wonderful group of people. And that was really where I think my Jewish observance and sort of like um, life sort of started to solidify and start to make a little bit more sense to me. That's where I started, you know, understanding a little bit more about tefillin, prayer, taking on different aspects of, of observance, but also more importantly, doing it together with people and in a community. We used to have wonderful big Friday night dinners. 
We had a minion there together, feeling like I was part of something communal as opposed to the hillside of India. It sounds like, though, when you went back to Israel, you weren't necessarily thinking it was going to turn you into a fully observant Jew. You just wanted to explore it further and it just sort of happened more organically about what you were being exposed to. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Definitely. There was no plan. <laughs> there was never a plan. <laughs> and, and that's true. That was true for most parts of my life. Like my wife and I still sort of marvel and look at each other and like, I'm not exactly sure how we ended up here because there was no plan. But I just knew that that was an experience that I wanted and I didn't know exactly where it was going to lead. I mean, for example, when I first came back, I was, like I said, I was a vegetarian. So I thought this practice of tefillin was really cool. So I said to Aubrey Isaacs, who was the director and a rabbi there, I said, I wanted to take this on as a project to sort of researching tefillin, but I wanted it to be vegetarian. I didn't like the fact it was made out of leather and I wanted to make vegetarian tefillin. So he was really the nicest guy and he didn't laugh at me. He didn't like, I mean, knowing what I know now, I might've laughed at myself, but he took it really seriously. He said, but before you do that, you might want to learn a little bit about what it is and why it is. And he gave me a couple great books about to fill in. And lo and behold, after I had learned that, then sure enough, I put on the traditional to fill in as opposed to the artificial vegetarian to fill in that I wanted to create because it started to make a lot of sense and you start to see the depth and the beauty of it. I didn't stop being a vegetarian at that point. But that's an example of just sort of finding things interesting, going where my heart led, where my interest lied, just trying to experiment with, you know, different things that I found meaningful or interesting. You also just brought up your wife for the first time in the interview. So you met in Israel. What was her background religiously? And then you also said you're a couple that doesn't do a lot of planning, but you must have had some discussions about where do we want to hold religiously and also where do we want to live once we get married? She comes from almost an identical background as me. The big difference is that her dad was in the Navy. He was a captain of a nuclear submarine. So they traveled around more, but his final port was Charleston, South Carolina. So that's where she went to high school. But she grew up in this in a very similar Jewish framework, conservative, kept kosher at home and had Hebrew school, bat mitzvah, um, the usual type of conservative you know, journey. And then while she was at Harvard, she also wanted to take some time off, read, think about what she wanted to do with her thesis and what she wanted to sort of do with her life post-college. So it was a natural fit for her to come to Israel based on her background also. So we met there. Did we ever have conversations about what we wanted our religious life to look like? Certainly not at first because we had no idea. We were just sort of experimenting with Shabbat and community and people and Judaism and Israel and learning about it all together. We met in 1996 and didn't get married until 2001. So we had a lot of time for those conversations. We didn't really start having them in earnest until we got engaged. And it was actually her, I'll, I'll never forget, she came back, she was learning with her college teacher and she came back and she's a person of great consistency and integrity. And remember growing up, conservative, like that wasn't a huge value. It wasn't like part of my Jewish experience was consistency and integrity. It was more about like interest and spiritual expression and exploration. But she's the one who came back and said, all right, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this. We're going to keep halakha. We're going to keep kosher out of the house the same way we keep it in the house. We're going to keep all these laws. And I remember literally falling onto the floor, <laughs> gasping for air. Yeah, I mean, what can you say? She was right. And, um, you know, that was it. So that was that was the extent of our conversation. And, you know, I think at that point we had made up our minds that, you know, a year or so before getting married, that that was how we were going to live our lives. 
I would think that kind of conversation also gets a little more serious when you have kids and you realize you're going to have to model something for them so they have some form of consistency in terms of religion. You don't necessarily have to have that conversation with such specificity before you have kids. Yeah, but you're, again, your line of questioning, I understand and I relate to because I understand enough about the Orthodox world now to know that that's the way people think in the Orthodox world. It's just not how we thought. Like, I never thought about what was I going to do with the rest of my life? Where was it going to lead? What was the plan? How many kids did you want to have? How are you going to raise them? Like, you know, and some of that stuff's worked out well for us and some has been more challenging. But we just never really, either of us really thought like that. We really more followed our passions, followed what was interesting for us. And Judaism was, it was that. It was on the top of our agenda as to what you know, gave our lives meaning and drove us in terms of our own personal, our search and our search together as a couple. So then where does your journey start as a couple once you get married? Where do you settle and what are you doing career-wise at that point? So then I came back to America intent to start the, uh, the beanery, the legumery. Uh-huh. At first in D.C. and then in Boston, I just started getting experience working in restaurants. I worked in dozens of different restaurants. And then finally, uh, coming up to Boston, I started becoming a manager in uh, kosher restaurants in Boston. First, um, I, if there's any old-time Bostoners listening, I was uh, the manager at Zatar's Oven in Coolidge Corner. Allah shalom. It was a great place, wonderful food, total chaos. And then, and then we were living in Boston. She had finished Harvard. She was working at the Kennedy School and doing uh, faith-based community organizing in Boston. And we both felt we really needed to get back to Israel to learn more. We just didn't, you know, we never really had had that Jewish learning. And we loved Israel and it was a place of growth for us. So we wanted to come back for a year. So after our first year of being married in, in Cambridge, we took off for Israel in 2002. And she, my wife was on a Derot fellowship, so she was doing community organizing in Jerusalem, and she was learning at Nishma. And for me, I went to yeshiva at um, Chappelle's, Darche Noam, which is a Baal Tshuva yeshiva in, in Jerusalem. Are you thinking at that point that you might actually want to have a career that relates to Judaism? Because up until this point, your mind is on restaurants, which doesn't necessarily have to be as directly connected to helping the Jewish people. Yes, the restaurant could be kosher, but it's not the same as going into work in Kira, for example. It's a good question, and there were sparks of it. I remember thinking that it would be fun to work in Hillel on the campus scene. There were times before we went to Israel that I was thinking about what type of rabbinical school or studies would I want to be into. I went to visit a couple places. Chavavei Torah just started. I went to visit there. I think I got the brochure from JTS. YU felt way too sort of foreign and orthodox for me at that point. Like I didn't, it just felt sort of like it was the moon, you know, it felt like too far away. None of those places or those experiences ever really spoke to me. Like, as you can tell, I'm a person who really loves the intensity and none of those felt like it was really going to be that for me. And, and we had this deep connection to Israel. That's where we had met and fallen in love and fallen in love with the country and wanted to come back. And everybody I talked to anyway said, if you, even if you want to go to rabbinical school in America, it's good to go get a year, build up your skills before you start whatever program you're going to start. Um, so that's really what it was. We went for one year. For me, it was to build up the skills. Everybody said Chappelle's was the place to build up your skills, and there were going to be lots of guys with my background, which there were. It was an unbelievable place and just an incredible experience. And then it just sort of snowballed. Like I, I don't think, again, we went in with any real plan. 
But we really did just go for a year and I was open to coming back and getting involved in rabbinical school or I was also interested in going into business. The business side of the restaurants is what really had interested me and spoke to me and maybe going to business school or doing something along those lines when we came back. But over time, you end up at the University of Pennsylvania, right, which is where I went to school. So I'm just thinking, how did this guy who's thinking he's going to be involved in beans and restaurants and all this stuff end up on campus at Penn? Well, so that's the eight years in yeshiva. So the one year in yeshiva at uh, Chappelle's turned into eight years in yeshiva and almost all of it in the mirror. I was finishing Chappelle's. I, I knew I was sort of the moment I came to Chappelle's, I fell in love with learning Gemara and I didn't want to learn anything else. So it was Gemara morning, noon and night. And there was nothing that I ever learned in any of, and I was blessed to go to great schools where there were some really eye-opening teachers and classes, but there was just nothing that ever clicked with my brain the way Gamora did, and I found as fascinating as that. So after about a year and a half in Chappelle's, I knew it was time to go somewhere, and the two places that were on my radar were, one was the Gush, and one was the Mir. So I, was, so I went to visit each place for a couple of days, and I went to the Gush, and I remember sitting down and going to the Gush. It's a beautiful place. People were perfectly nice. And I remember asking the people there, I was like, how did you make this decision to come to the Gush? Like, how did you decide to go to the Gush and not to the mirror or somewhere else? And obviously, that's a ridiculous question. The guys looked at me like I had completely fallen off the moon. Like, that's not, that's not a reasonable question. But there was something about the mirror that spoke to me from the moment I saw it. The first day I went to see it, I just was wearing khakis, a blue blazer, was pouring rain in January in Jerusalem. And this really kind guy just came up to me and said like, hey, you look like you're visiting. Let me take you around. And the roar of the base Midrash and the energy, and you could just feel the excitement. It was just captivating. It was just incredible. And it, it, entering a whole world, that whole neighborhood was, felt like going to a completely different planet for me. And it just grabbed my attention right away. And that's it. I chose to go to the Mir and Ended up spending six plus years sort of in Haredi Yeshivas and almost all of it in the mirror. And it was the most fascinating place, the, the culture, the people. And ironically, I also felt a warmth there that I didn't always feel so much in the modern Orthodox world. There was a Hamish kite there that really touched me and spoke to me. And the learning was just unbelievable. I mean, there, the people were just incredible. And I think you mentioned before about not having a plan. I, I think I love that about the mirror. Nobody had a plan. Like everybody <laughs> literally just showed up to learn as much as they could for as long as they could. And I was in a shir for two or three years. And then I was in a chabura for two or three years. And my, my Rosh Chabura was just the most amazing guy I'd ever met. Like since he was 11, he wanted to be a Talmud Chacham. He showed up at the mirror when he was probably 20. And he learned 12 hours a day for the rest of his life. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know. It's, he's still there. I still go visit him. And the amount of time that he took to go over my questions, whether they were on the sugya, whether they were on something else, I just couldn't learn anywhere else. I tried going somewhere else for a month or so. And then at some point I realized maybe I should get smicha because if you're going to get a job, that would be good. And they don't have any programs like that at the mirror. So I was like, okay, let me go to a kolel and we'll learn halacha and we'll get smicha. I just couldn't stay away. It was two or three weeks. I came running back and the way I ended up doing smicha was I just learned during my lunch break, I learned Yisra Hetter and ended up taking the Rabbanu test and just did it like that because I, I couldn't stay away from the normal Seder of learning in the mirror. Everything else just sort of paled in comparison. I loved it. Now, I know you're doing the interview today from Israel, and there's so many points in your story where the highlights have to do with Israel. So it would have made sense to me if you just decided at that point with your wife, we're staying, this is where our life is supposed to be, but you end up going back to the United States after these eight years, right? 
Yeah, it was a hard transition because as wonderful as the mirror was, it was also torture. Because being somebody who's not Haredi, to immerse yourself in that world for that many years is very, very hard. I, I think it's the emotional toll it takes on to put yourself in any learning framework that's serious like that for a long time is hard. My wife, in, in the meantime, had done her PhD in public policy at Hebrew U um, and was looking to do a postdoc. And we just sort of felt it was time. Uh, we had two kids at that point, five and two, and we hooked up with JLIC. And it ended up being the most amazing thing. It was uh, our first point of contact in JLIC was Ruff Schrader, who was described to us by everybody as a tzaddik, and he is nothing short of that. He's just an amazing person, and he believed in us, even though for us, like uh, coming from what is at that point a very strange background, for him to see who we really were is that was amazing. Like I get choked up thinking about it. He's and you go to Penn as your first stop, and also. As you're explaining that, for our listeners who aren't familiar with JLIC, just spell it out for them and explain what the organization does. Yeah, so we went off to Penn. It matched very well. My wife was doing her postdoc at the Annenberg School at Penn, and um, and we were the JLIC couple there. And um, JLIC placed rabbinic couples around America and North America on college campuses in order to develop and support religious infrastructure and students. So at that time, Penn had 250 plus undergraduates who were Orthodox, another 100, 150 graduate students. It was a big Orthodox community. And you work in partnership with Hillel, and you do everything from Shirim, Shabbat, Chagim, Minyanim, and a lot of one-on-one work and getting to know students and community building. The group of people that I met there, and it was my first real immersion into modern Orthodox culture in America, was just the most amazing group of students. They were interesting, they were interested, they were warm, they were honest, they loved the contradictions that I carried around with me, they loved being able to speak openly and honestly about the own, their contradictions that they felt. And we learned Torah together, and we went out for coffee together, and we had Shabbos together, and we played basketball together, and it was just an incredible, incredible experience with a really incredible group of people. And for me, it was just such an important transition and felt like it was the place where it all came together. It helped me put all the pieces together and felt like I could integrate myself. And we were there for four years and had an amazing experience. And then it was sort of time to go. Like, you know, usually jobs end either because you get tired of that job or you move on to a better job. But I think the job ended at Penn similar to how college ends. Just at some point it ends and you graduate. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You just kind of time to move on. So, But you used your position at JLIC to then get back to Israel because you're still with that organization, right? Yeah, I stayed with JLIC ever since. So I've been now with JLIC for 12, 13 years. So we ended up coming back to Israel because my wife, we're both American and all of our families in America, and it makes it challenging to be in Israel, but she knew she wanted to go down an academic route and she got offered a tenure track job at Ben Gurion University where she's still a professor. And so that was it. We were, we were on the flight back to Israel. We spent our first three years living in Beersheba. And at that point, JLIC wasn't doing any activity in Israel. And I said to Rabbi Elon Haber, who was my boss at the time, still is, I said, we should do something. We're going back to Israel. There's an opportunity there. And the first thing that we talked about was there are thousands of gap year students coming to JLIC campuses and coming back to America in general. And what can we do to help them transition um, successfully from what we hope is a successful gap year yeshiva midrashah experience back to campus and get connected. And we know in, on college campuses that first month can be treacherous. Like you want to get off on the right foot and get connected. So his response to me was the response, I think, of a lot of nonprofits. Great idea. 
We don't have the money for it. If you can raise the money, we could do it. So that was my forced first entryway into fundraising. So um, I raised some money. We put the program together and it was really successful. We still do it. We still work on how can we help people who have made that decision to go to JLIC campuses to successfully transition. And then from there, we started building more and more stuff. Uh, the next idea we did was a summer program. There was really no framework for Orthodox students to come and have a summer program in Israel. So we developed an internship Beit Midrash program, which we started in 2016. And it was amazing. It was just an incredible. We got a great response. We had 30, 35 um, students the first year. And now that program, seven, eight years later, we have five of those programs and we're expecting over 220, 230 students to come. That's been just super rewarding. And we were very, very fortunate. The Mayberg Foundation, who I'm still um, very, very grateful to, they helped us start JLIC in Israel. Um, and that was our first campus. The numbers continue to rise. The need continues to grow. And we now have six couples on five campuses in Israel. And next year, we're starting another program at the Technion. It's been amazing to build these communities and this type of community and infrastructure for people in their 20s, Olim, people coming to study in college in Israel, to stay and work in Israel. So that's been another big project that I've been working on for JLIC. I have to say that for a guy who doesn't like to plan, you certainly seem to have a lot of plans that work out. So how do you explain this? <laughs> I think I do like to plan. I'm a planner. I, I love to have a good proposal and a good business plan in place. I think for my own personal life, I don't necessarily like to plan, but organizationally, I do like to plan, which I guess is sort of, I never thought about it like that. Like, why don't I ever do any strategic planning for my own life? But I have such gratitude to JLIC and to the OU for this framework because it's meant so much to me personally. It's meant so much to the students that we work with thousands and thousands every year. And for me personally, it was just an incredible opportunity to integrate my skill set, who I was, the complexity of myself as a person, to be able to bring out all the talents to the fore. Even the stuff we've done now in Israel, I feel like I finally got my shot at entrepreneurship of starting different programs and figuring out how to do that, even though it's in the nonprofit world. And it's just been amazingly rewarding. And, and the people that we get to work with on a staff level, it's an um, incredible group of people. So let's see if we can sum all this up in one final interview question. As you reflect back on your life, it didn't have to be that tour observance became a step in the process. You seem like someone who was searching and seeking, and you easily could have found it somewhere else, particularly in some of the places that you were traveling to. So what do you think for you, the fact that becoming an Orthodox Jew was part of that journey has meant to how your life has played out versus what could have happened if you didn't do that? I don't think I would. I think I would be wealthier. I don't think I would be happier. I think I'd be a lot less happy. And I think like the main pieces of my life of um, marriage, kids, having a career that I care about, having a life that has meaning to me, I don't think I would have those things in nearly the same like order that I have them now. So... Thank God, you know, it worked out. There wasn't much of a plan, but, you know, I guess you follow your heart and you follow your instincts and, and you have a great family who, you know, raises you with, you know, those things that you care about. Like without that, those things wouldn't have made sense to me. It wouldn't, my path wouldn't have played out the way it did. Well, let me just say, as somebody who says they didn't have a plan, but was seeking, you certainly seem to find yourself to a fulfilling life. And I think that's something that all of us can relate to. So Rabbi Shulman, I just want to say, Thank you for the time, and thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. 
To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.